Father God, this is your word for us. Father, not just to hear, but to do. God, we ask that you will help us to conform to your word, Father. Lord, that instead of trying to mold uh, the word around ourselves, Father, that we'll mold ourselves around your word. For it is good, it is pure, and it gives life. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? That is the question that launched Jesus into this fourth discourse on kingdom greatness. In answering the disciples, Jesus called to himself a child and stood them in the midst of them and says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So he points to this child as the standard of greatness in the kingdom and then begins to explain what that humble greatness looks like in day-to-day life. Uh, as we saw last week, this is part two of a two-part sermon. Uh, if we survey the whole discourse, we see that humble greatness in the kingdom looks like two things. Number one, it looks like having the right view of our sin. And then number two, it's having the right view of sinners. These two things go together. Kingdom greatness, king, uh, humbly great kingdom citizens view themselves with humility. They view their own sin as the greatest danger in the room. For a humbly great kingdom citizen, there is no bigger sinner in the room than themselves. That's how they view themselves. And then they view other sinners in mercy and grace. Now, last week we dealt with how to have the right view of sin. And if you weren't able to see that, we encourage you to go back on our YouTube channel and you can watch the sermon there. But today we're looking at specifically how to have the right view of sinners. Here's the thing. Humble people not only have the right view of themselves, they not only see themselves in the right way, they also have the right perspective of those around them. Humbly great children in the kingdom see themselves first as great sinners in need of grace. You see how often prideful people switch that, where we talk about other people first, and then we talk about ourselves. And yet, in this case, Christ shows us that humbly great people see themselves first as great sinners, and then they see others around them in the same light as sinners who need grace. My friends, we're going to see today that how we treat sinners around us shows just how much we value the grace we have been given. How we treat the people around us shows just how much we value the grace we've been given. Our attitude toward others reveals whether or not we have correctly assessed the nature of our own depravity, whether or not we have truly tasted the sweetness of forgiveness, and whether or not we have God's biblical understanding of his own heart. We're going to see all that in this final section of Matthew 18. Matthew 18 holds these things in perfect tension. Sin is dangerous. God loves sinners. Perfect tension. Sin is dangerous. Sin is deadly. Sin is the worst conceivable thing on earth. And yet God desperately loves sinners. And they are in need of his mercy and grace. To say that we must have the right view of sinners, which is a view of grace, 
does not diminish the serious nature of sin. I feel, I feel like sometimes we feel like we have trouble loving sinners because we are so worried that that might somehow diminish the theology of sin, that we might somehow be affirming the wrongdoing. But according to Matthew 18, these two things stand in equal truth. They are true and consistent with one another. We are to see sin as an incredible danger that sucks joy, life, away from people and away from God, from their relationship with God. It is something that is at the root of all human unhappiness. It is why we don't naturally have a relationship with God. It's why we die. And yet at the same time, sin as atrocious as it is, God has still called us to love the sinner and have a heart of compassion. If you want to know what this looks like, simply consider how God lavished his grace on you. Think back on all the things that you don't want to think about. Think back on all the sins that you have hidden in your closet. Think back on all the skeletons, all the things you hope nobody else knows about. And consider the fact that he still loves you, knowing those things better than you do. That is how we hold a holy, loving God in perfect tension. He knows the shameful shadows that lurk in your life. He knows all the things that you have done and are ashamed of, and yet he has still opened the way for you to have full access to him, Christ. He knows we are sinners, and yet he offers us to become sons and daughters. That's the amazing beauty of gracious God. Now, what you're going to see today is that grace that he's given you is the same grace that you're expected to give to others. What he's given to you, you are now expected to allow to exude from your life. That same sweetness, that same aroma of mercy needs to be coming from you for you have received it. The standing command Jesus has given his people is to love one another, not just because they have been loved, but love one another as I have loved you. That's the standard of love that we're to give, which means that we're to love others with a sacrificial love even while they are still sinners. Even while they may not agree with anything you say. To love others like Christ has loved us. So exactly how are we to, how are we to view sinners? What kind of attitude are we to have toward those who sin? As we will see, Jesus expects Humbly great children of the kingdom to, number one, rejoice that God saves sinners. That's number one. Number two, to confront sin in the right way. And number three, forgive much because they have been forgiven. So we see this in the rest of Matthew 18 as we walk through it. First, we see that humbly great children rejoice that God saves sinners. And speaking about sin and sinners, Jesus refocuses our eyes first on God's heart for sinners. In verse 10, Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now the word despise can mean to look down upon, to show contempt for, to treat as unworthy, to push away. Take your pick. It's, it's basically this look down the nose type of posture that is found in so many of our churches. It's this, I'm better than you type of disposition. 
He says not to have that kind of disposition toward his little ones, not to act like we're better, not to act like we have any reason to look down our noses at them. As much as we would like to think that we never do that, I think if you just look about at the last seven days, I think you find how often we actually do do that. How easily and how quickly we can transition into comparison mode. First, we begin to evaluate other sins along our minor defects. And then the judgment begins. Subtly, our own view, our own sin becomes mitigated. And everybody else's sin grows worse. For example, I just want you all to know, I don't gossip. I vent. But when you do the same thing, it's gossip. Do you see how quickly we kind of engage in that? I have a few bad habits, but you have addictions. I'm just speaking my mind. I'm speaking the truth. You are being belligerent. We do this so easily, and in this way, we begin looking down our noses at other people, thinking that our sins are just minor character defects, just a few blind flaws, but everybody else has the fatal flaws. As it is, Jesus tells us not to have that look down the nose type of attitude towards sinners. We are to remember that those of whom we might be tempted to hold in contempt they still carry an intrinsic value in and of themselves. These people that you look at, and you might be so easily to go, what a terrible sinner. (laughs) Those are the very people that God cares deeply about. So much so that he's given them angels. He's given them angelic servants to care for them, to protect them, to provide them. He's given them these massive angelic servants as a token of his love. And those are the people that we are tempted to show contempt toward. Those are the people we look down our noses at. To further his point, Jesus tells a parable. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. Now, a shepherd never gives up on his sheep. A real shepherd never gives up on his sheep. He seeks the one that went astray, and then what does he do? He rejoices. He doesn't beat it. He doesn't shame it. He doesn't, he doesn't turn it out and turn it into mutton chops. No, he rejoices when he finds it. Well, who are the sheep that go astray? You might think, well, I've never been gone astray. I'm part of the 99. Well, according to Isaiah 50, 53, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. It's all of us that he's come after. So I just want to let you know, if you're not rejoicing over the fact that God saves sinners, you're not rejoicing over the truth that God has saved you. Because you were the sheep that went astray. You were the one he sought after. You were the one he came down from heaven, took on flesh, died for, so that you could now be in the fold of God. And so when you refuse to rejoice that God saves all these smelly sinners that you choose not to like, you are failing to rejoice in your own salvation. That is what he's called us to do. So here's the question. How do you treat people... How do you respond when 
when you approach a sinner? How do you respond when God brings back sinners? Do you, like God, rejoice? Do you pray for those who've gone astray? Do you share God's heart? Do you see them as people who have intrinsic value in and of themselves? And God has graciously, graciously rescued them. And that is something to be celebrated. The heart of Christ, I'm going to tell you something we all need to hear again and again. The heart of Christ is for sinners, not for Pharisees. The heart of Christ is for sinners. He turns out the Pharisees away every single time. But he welcomes the tax collectors, the sinners, the lepers at his table. The heart of Christ is for sinners. He, like the man in the parable, has come to seek and save the lost. He's not here to separate his people from them. He's here to bring them into his people. It is not his will that even one of them should perish. So, let me just ask you a loaded question. How does your heart for sinners compare with God's? I mean, we've all watched the news. We've all seen atrocious sins this year. Have you been rooting on the sideline like Jonah? Bring down the fire on Nineveh. Are you like Jesus, whose heart is burdened for the lost sheep? Whose heart is moved to compassion? Do you do everything possible to be a visible representation of the shepherd who goes after the stray? Do you bleed with them? Or do you talk about them? Those are two different things. Humbly great children of the kingdom have hearts that mirror the heart of their father. You cannot be great in the kingdom unless your heart is broken, not just by sin and because of sin, but broken specifically for sinners. As much as you might get angry at sinful people in the world, Scripture calls them blind, deaf, dumb, They're helpless, not dumb as in can't think, dumb as in can't speak. They can't even cry out for help. They don't even know they need to cry out for help. You wouldn't look at a blind, deaf, and dumb person and get angry with them and punch them in the face when they bump into you, would you? No, your heart, if it's like Christ, would be moved to compassion, to give sight to the blind, to open the ears of the deaf, and to help the mute sing. It is no small thing in the eyes of God, and the eyes of heaven, when a sinner repents and returns to him. Therefore, don't let it be a small thing in your eyes. Make it the number one thing that you live for. Make it the number one thing that makes your heart beat, for Christ's heart beats for sinners. Second, humbly great children confront sin in the right way. I'm just going to give you a disclaimer. Some of you are going to get your feelings hurt in this. And we need our feelings heard in this. If we don't do things Jesus' way, bad things happen. But let's talk about it. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You know what all things includes? All things. Including how to handle confrontation and interpersonal conflict how to handle offense, 
how you handle the sins that are done against you or the people that have wronged you shows just how much you value grace or don't value it at all. Matthew 18 teaches us how we are to confront sin in the church. Jesus, being the good shepherd, knew something about his sheep. We fight. We bite one another. My friends, that is not unique to any church. That's just the reality of having sheep. We headbutt one another. We backbite. Deeper, nasty, mean creatures. And Jesus, looking ahead at his church, knew that he would need to step them through how to handle conflict, for he knew there would be conflict. Now, we as modern people tend to shy away from Matthew 18. It's been known as the, the discipline manual for the church. This is where we get our idea of church discipline. And to us modern people, whoa, 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 who are we to confront the sins of others? It's none of our business. We're not ever supposed to confront. We can only talk about it in groups behind a person's back, but we cannot talk to them directly about it. When, if ever, do we have the right to confront someone's sin? Let me just help you see how different that idea is from the idea of true church discipline, of what discipline really is. While we may balk at concepts like church discipline, our balking may, re- may reveal a misunderstanding of what discipline actually is. Many of us have seen or at least heard of abusive church leadership in which discipline was viewed as a threat, not a loving action. It was something that was always looming in the corner, and we've, we've heard of that in different cases, right? But those wrongly abusive instances notwithstanding, the true heart of discipline is love and concern, not punishment. Love and concern. Discipline, according to its biblical concept, is not retribution. It's a rescue mission. Why do you discipline your children? Because you're rescuing them from themselves. Not because you're seeking to punish them. Not just because you want to hurt them for doing some kind of wrong. You are disciplining. You, 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 you say, no, don't put that... <laughs> fork into the electric socket because you are rescuing them. That's discipline when you confront them directly about a harmful thing. It's a rescue mission. If you have seen your child, like I have seen many of my children, my children, um, I have three boys um, and one girl, and uh, the girl always takes up the role as the princess in the castle, and the three boys are always running around with sticks. I never, I never really understood that. I had sticks when I was a boy, but I, I, I can't diagnose why we do that, but we like sticks. And before you know it, the sticks start to get sharper, right? And then there's sword play. And so I, if you've seen Titus, he's three foot tall, and he's running around with a four foot stick that could, you know, skewer our dog. And so see him running around recklessly with it. What is the most loving thing to do if I see my child running recklessly with a sharp stick? Join them. I tried that. I almost lost an eye. (laughs) The most loving thing to do if your child is doing something reckless and dangerous is to intervene. Especially when they start jabbing the stick at others. You up your intervention, right? You tell them once, hey, don't run with the stick. 
hey, you, you come back out, that means don't jab it at others. I know you're not running, but stop jabbing the stick at your brother's face. And then you might have to go out a third time and up the intervention when they start to try to spear the dog like it was a buffalo. Then you take the stick and you break it in half. <laughs> you up your intervention out of care for them. Someone is about to get hurt. And out of love, which is discipline, you go out to intervene. That is the heart of discipline. My friends, sin is far more dangerous than a sharp stick. I sometimes don't think we truly believe that, though. I mean, sin has the power and the ability to separate all humanity from God. It has the power to break marriages. It has the power to ruin jobs and dreams and careers. It has the power to end friendships. I mean, it's sin that has brought about wars and world wars at that. And we treat it as if it's a small thing compared to a sharp stick. In the biblical concept of discipline, if, it's a, if the biblical concept of discipline is a rescue mission, then the end goal of confronting someone's sin is restoration. My friends, when somebody's in sin, they're heading down a trajectory that's going to end in ruin. I've been a pastor long enough to see many lives ruined by decades-old sin that was left unconfronted. Marriages just subtly, suddenly obliterated. Friendships over. It's a sad and lonely existence, too. Slowly but surely, the joy gets sucked out of life. Those friends that we used to hang out with, or those marriages that we used to, we used to find so much comfort in, the children we used to speak to, slowly but surely, the joy just ebbs out of it. And it's replaced with misery and bitterness. As a slow and painful death. And when you don't confront someone's sin, that is the trajectory they're on. A slow, shriveling death to a cancer. Sin. It's always best. It is, it, is a, it is an invitation to revitalization. An invitation to restoration when you confront somebody's dangerous and not just your opinion about what they're doing. We're not talking about that. We're talking about known sin. Their anger issue needs to be confronted. Pornography needs to be confronted. That is one that is specifically going to have a trajectory towards death. Pride, power struggles, envy, jealousy, all of those things lead to a lonely, lonely, dead life. And if we love people, we will confront the issue directly. To, to use another analogy, if you walked by somebody's house and you saw this massive crack in their foundation, you might ignore it and you might just decide to keep going, but eventually that crack is going to endanger the entire house and leave it in the collapse. Sometimes it's best to point out the crack in the foundation and say, we better deal with that before it gets to that point. Because the house will collapse eventually. If left undone, the house will collapse eventually. Foundational cracks cannot be ignored, just like sin can't be ignored. 
the aim of church discipline, the aim of confronting sin is to point out the crack in the foundation so that it'll get fixed, so that this person that you love so dearly isn't left with a collapsed home all around them. Third, many people are uncomfortable with the concept of church discipline because they feel that it might be viewed as rejection of the person being confronted. Aren't we supposed to accept all people regardless of their sin? How then can we confront them for sin? Well, yes, you're absolutely right. We're supposed to accept all people regardless of their sin or background. That doesn't change. That is just inherent love for a person. However, one of the greatest tragedies facing our modern society is, is being tempted into seeing loving acceptance and complete affirmation as the same thing. In other words, if you really love me, never tell me that what I'm doing is sin. And so we've put together love and acceptance and affirmation into the same action. My friends, that's not just dumb. It just can't happen. Sometimes if you love someone, you cannot affirm what they're doing. Go back to the child with a sharp stick. Is it possible to love your child that is about to skewer the neighbor kid with his sharp stick while at the same time not affirming their dangerous action? I sure hope so, because if you affirm the dangerous action because you're trying to love them, let me tell you the truth, you're not really loving them. My friends, if someone is bold enough to come to you and tell you that they don't affirm something that you've said or something you've done and give biblical credence for it, that is bold love. They care more about you than they do about the awkward uncomfortability of your situation. That's real love. We, for some reason, want everybody to tell us that what we say is, is inerrant. That what we do is infallible. And we must have that in order to be loved. And if you don't tell, if you tell me something I did is errant and fallible, you must not really love me. My friends, the world is doing that over and over again. And we as Christians who refuse to confront sin are doing the same thing. You must be open to the fact that full affirmation does not mean love. And love does not always mean full affirmation. It is possible to love and accept and to, to, to have the deepest regard for someone. I love my children. I love them desperately. I cannot affirm one punching another. I can't. Out of love for them, I cannot affirm that that's right. Out of love for them, I cannot affirm that playing, knives is, playing with knives is okay. And if I really do love them... I'll do everything possible to let them know I do not affirm those things. My friends, when you're in sin and someone is bold enough to get up behind a pulpit, to come to you directly, to send you a message, and they jump through selfish uncomfortability to be honest with you, the Bible says, according to James, that one who brings someone back from their sin has saved their life. That's what a lifesaver looks like. That doesn't mean someone's being overly critical. I mean, again, we're not talking about just stating our opinion. 
I don't like that you watched that. I don't like that you... I mean, that's not, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about known sin. Things that you can find in Scripture, black and white, that these are things that we know will lead to death. Your anger will kill you. It will. And it will kill every relationship that you have. How many friendships ended in 2020 and 2021 because of our anger, our envy, and our pride? And that's just the beginning. How many church splits, how many pastors are gone out of their churches now because of envy, pride, jealousy, and fighting? Sin kills. And rather than ignore the snake, cut its head off. My friends, if a man is going to beat his wife to a pulp, why should the church be silent? Should we not stand up for the oppressed? If a wife is going to make a choice with her boss that's going to endanger her marriage and wreck their children, the worst thing we can do is let the children see the church do nothing. My friends, I know there's people that want to self-destruct. Don't let the church hand them a gun. And essentially, by turning a blind eye and not saying something, we're handing the gun. I, I know several men in this church that if, if they walked into the room and they saw someone with a loaded gun to their head, I mean, we're talking about full-fledged body tackling kind of intervention to stop somebody. That's love. If you open the door and see someone with a loaded gun to their head, it's the most unloving thing to just turn around quietly and shut the door and say nothing. We do that all the time when we refuse to speak directly about sin. The church should not be asked to help you in your self-destruction. We care too much about you and too much about your life to do that. Church discipline is a life-saving thing. And we're not talking about formal church discipline. I mean, yes, there is a formal process, and we'll get to that here in just a minute. We're talking about just the act of believers confronting one another in a loving way for someone to come to you and say, Hey, I overheard something you said, and it was incredibly hurtful to somebody. You've ended your relationship with that person. And maybe you need to go back and make amends. We're talking about those kind of conversations, that text message that says, Hey, just want you to know, I, I see, I've seen lately that you're really fearful and anxious, and I'm really worried about you. I think you're getting a little too involved in the events of the world, and you need to trust Jesus a little bit more. That is a type of direct confrontation that is good. To tell someone, hey, I know you told me the other day that you had an issue with another lady in the church. I'm just going to ask you, can you go talk to that person? I'm, I'm just going to let you know that Every time you and I talk, I'm going to ask you if you've talked to them, because I care more about your relationship with this other person. And if you continue to handle things this way, you're going to be a very lonely person because nobody's going to want to be friends with you. Just to be completely honest, just speaking directly. Can you imagine how many relationships might be saved? If we just spoke honestly? I mean, we've got biblical precedents for these things. So what should we do? Well, Jesus gives us exactly the right process. Here's what a gospel-centered Christian does. If, if he tells us 
that, that if somebody sins against us, here's what you're supposed to do. Number one, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. How many times has discipline or loving intervention broken down at the very first step? We will hold entire tea parties to talk about somebody else's sin long before we go to that person alone. The entire world knows what you have against that person, except that person. They've heard it from your sister's aunt, second cousin that's twice removed before they ever hear it from you. I hate to, I, can, I, can I just be honest with you? That is called gossip, and that is itself a sin. If you want to handle things biblically, you go directly to the person. If you're not willing to go directly to the person, you might want to ask, is it actually a sin? If it is a sin and you're not willing to go directly to the person, then you might need to ask, do I actually love this person? But my goodness, do we fall, fall short in the church? And let me tell you, the greatest enemy of the church isn't that we're not, we don't have good enough preachers who wear tight jeans. That's not the issue. The number one reason why people leave the church is because they see you be so contradictory. They know what your Bible says, and yet they hear you gossip about them. They hate that. I just want, I just want to let you know, non-Christians hate seeing Christians pretend they hate that. That's the worst enemy of the church. Is when they know what we should be doing better than we do, and we don't act it out. You want to handle conflict like a truly humbly great child in the kingdom? You bold up, and you go directly to the person who sinned against you. The only other two options are either they didn't really sin against you, and so therefore you should probably just get over it, or number two, you don't love them enough to address their sin. Those are the only other options. Because if you choose to talk about them with others, you've broken what Christ expects of you. You go directly to the person. My friends, there's many of us that have repentance to do on this nature. Many of us. Myself included. May we be people who go directly to the person before we publish their sins to the world. If it doesn't work then, if they have actually sinned, we've gone to them and they're like, shut up, I'm not listening to you. Then you go and you get a second. I don't know if you've watched Alexander Hamilton, the, the show, the movie, but you know, there's a whole dueling thing and there's all these rules. You go get your second. Well, this is, you go get your second now, okay? It's coming from Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, that every charge may be established on the evidence of two or three witnesses. My friends, there have been times when I've confronted someone and I walked out of that meeting feeling less confident that what I actually felt was sin. And I've had to go to a brother, can I just ask you a question? Can you come talk with me and this person and, and you help be the judge? Are we humble enough to bring in a mediator who can speak objectively from scripture to help confirm that what we see is actually sin? I mean, if you've gone to that person directly, they're not listening Bring another person, two or three, and have them sit down and say, hey, can you just listen to us talk and help us get to what's right? Now, we want to we be heard, 
We want to be listened to, but we don't want anyone to tell us whether or not what we think. We, what we think is just right. That guy's in sin. That's it. But now, the second step of the process is to go get two or three. And then if he still doesn't listen to those two or three, suppose you call this meeting, and you've got two or three people there, and it is, brother, you're addicted to pornography. We found it on your phone. We care deeply about you and your wife. And we're going to do everything possible to help you. Will you let us help you? No, it's, not your, it's none of your business. Brother, your wife is broken and hurt. Your children are talking about things that children your age should never talk about because they found it. Brother, you are ruining your marriage. Will you let us help you? No, that's when it comes to the church. Why does it go to the church, the assembly? Why does it come to us all? Well, we are the God's family of ambassadors. We're an embassy of the kingdom. When an American commits a crime in another country, the embassy tends to get involved in some, in some way, doesn't it? Just normal international politics. Well, we're an embassy of heaven. And so if there's a professing believer out there saying, yes, I'm a Christian, I belong to this church, and yet they're living in such a way, they are misrepresenting the gospel. They are misrepresenting the kingdom for which we stand. We stand for the oppressed. We stand for the broken. We stand for the hurting. We do not protect the abuser. And sometimes it helps to be clear about that. Not sometimes, always. My friends, just once again, going back to the child. If your child was running mindlessly to a busy intersection, you would want everyone available running as fast and as hard to stop them. You don't care if it's 10 or 20. You want everyone available running to stop that child. Sometimes sin is so deep and so wicked that it just sits so heavy that the entire church has to start running tackle the child before they get run over. That's why it comes to the church. Jesus says, if it gets to that point and they still don't listen, then you're to treat them like a tax collector or a Gentile. Now, what he's not saying there is that you shouldn't love them. Think about how Jesus treated Gentiles and tax collectors. He loves them desperately. When he's saying treat them like a Gentile and tax collector, what he's saying there is get on the same page as to what the mission is. When I'm with a brother, I can enjoy a burger. I can go sit at the back of their house and enjoy the fire pit. It's quite relaxing and refreshing. But when I'm with a Gentile or a tax collector, someone who's committed in sin, I have one mission. That's to convince them to repent and have life. My friends, when it comes to the matter of church discipline, well, we're basically telling everyone, hey, we know that you play fantasy football with them. I just hope you know that fantasy football is not the main mission right now. The main mission is saving their life. The main mission is calling them back. Sure, you might want to talk about your favorite sports players with them. That's fine. But when you do so, do so knowing that you're keeping up that relationship to rescue them, to see them restored. That's what Jesus wants us to do. Treat them like tax collectors and, and Gentiles. He went after Gentiles. He went after tax collectors. He seated them at his table. What for? So that they could hear the gospel. That is our kingdom mission. Jesus promises that he's given us the authority to do this. He says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. 
Whatever you loose on the earth shall be loose in heaven. And then along with this authority that he's given to his church, he's promised that the father will hear our request. In other words, as we're praying this whole time, Jesus has guaranteed that God hears. Again, I say to you, if two of you, just two of you agree on anything on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. And even better, Jesus has promised that he would be with us through our entire mission of restoration. For where there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am among them. My friends, God's heart is to see sinners restored, see lives changed, to see hearts transformed, to see marriages rebuilt, to see friendships reconciled. And he makes himself fully available to do that work. Now, the final aspect of being humbly great children of the kingdom is that we forgive much because we have been forgiven much. And this is probably one of the most important points about being a humbly great child. Peter asked Jesus, he's heard all this, and he's probably like us, Lord, how, how much do you really expect us to forgive people? Seven times? Now, it's easy to make fun of Peter at this point, but I just want you to know that his seven times is uh, double and a half of what the typical response of that day. If you were to ask any rabbi in Jesus' day how often that they are to forgive, they'd say three times. You get three strikes and then they're out. Don't talk to them anymore. Peter says, okay, Jesus, I'll, I'll up that seven times then. And Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, the number's not so important. It's the fact that he's blowing out any specific tally sheet. There's no limit to how much or how often we must be willing to forgive someone. He tells another parable showing the kingdom, what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he talks about the servant who is in debt to the king. This king decides he's going to call all debts. He's going to settle his accounts. In other words, everyone that owes him something is going to bring it back now. It's time to pay up with interest. The servant comes, and this, there's a servant there that owes uh, uh, 10,000 talents, 10,000 talents. Now, just so you know how much that is, one talent is 20 years worth of wages. Okay, so take your annual income and times it by 20. That's one talent. This man owed, owed 10,000 talents. In other words, he would have to live to be 200,000 years old, giving every dollar that he makes for a year to pay it back. It's impossible. He cannot pay that. He could not pay that if he spent his whole lifetime trying to pay that. And more some, and, and still more. The king threatens to sell the man and his whole family to pay off the debt. And the man falls and he begs and he please forgive me, give me patience. He just asks for patience, actually. That's all he wants, just a little more time. What does the king do? He obliterates the debt. His heart's moved to compassion. And he sends the servant out debt-free. It's unthinkable grace and generosity. 200,000 years of an annual income wiped out. Now, what did he do after that? What would you have done right after that? I think I'd have been behind myself a Coke or something. I mean, some kind of celebration, an ice cream dinner whatever. But no, this man decides that he's going to settle accounts for himself. So he goes to a fellow servant who owed him a far lesser amount, less than six months pay. Okay. So you got 
200,000 years of annual income versus six months pay. And he goes to that servant. He begins to choke him. He says, pay what you owe. Now this isn't a king to a servant like it was with him. This is a fellow servant to a fellow servant, an equal who owes a far lesser amount. The man does exactly what the first servant did and he falls on his knees. He begs for patience. And what does the servant do? He throws him in the debtor's prison. Now we get to the next point and we understand the king's anger. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? In other words, the king's expectation is no one owed you anything. Because I forgave you all that you owed. And the fact that you held him in debt makes you now liable for your own debt. That's a great story, isn't it? It's not so much a story as much as it's real life. Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you. If you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Goodness. You mean these petty offenses? we have to let go? You mean these things that people say that kind of hurt our feelings, we have to forgive? The way they looked at us the wrong way, we now have to let go? My friends, let me just paint the picture of what's happened to you. You were in a debt you could not pay in a thousand lifetimes. God, out of great love for you, sent his one and only son. He took on flesh. He lived the life you should have lived. And he died your death. And in dying your death, he took your record of debt, that, that payment that you could never pay, that debt, and he nailed it to the cross and he canceled it. You've been forgiven. And not only that, he rose again three days later, showing that he didn't just pay your past debt that you could never pay. He opened the vault of heaven for you forever. And now you have access to it. Now you're going to spend your life bitter at other people's smaller offenses. My friends, you sinned against God, the king of the cosmos. You rebelled against him. When somebody sins against you, they're not sinning against a sovereign. They're sinning against an equal. Sinners sin against one another. It's just how we do things. My friends, there's some of you in here so taken up in bitterness, unforgiveness, anger. And I'll just speaking it straight from the text that reveals very much how you value or not value the grace that you've been given. If you truly have been set free from your debt, set others free from the debt they owe you. You have been forgiven much. Therefore, forgive. It may hurt, but I guarantee it probably won't cost you a crucifixion. Because that's what it cost him. My friends, these things that I've spoken over the last two weeks, having the right perspective of sin and the right perspective of sinners, these things are non-negotiables to be humbly great in the kingdom. You cannot be humbly great. 
You will be small and broken and ruined in the kingdom as long as you refuse these two things. If you want to be humbly great, humble yourself. That takes a lot of condescension. Humble yourself. Become like a child. What do we expect of our children when they do wrong? Say you're sorry. Then live in the grace and forgiveness that God has given you. We have the Lord's Supper, but before we take the Lord's Supper today, 1 Corinthians 11 is very clear that we're not to take the Lord's Supper unexamined. Let me just tell you, according to that, there's some of us that must do repentance. It doesn't matter if you have to walk across the aisle and embarrassingly, humiliatingly grab someone by the arm and say, can we talk for a few minutes? This is a chance for you to do what's most important. It's so important that you resolve your conflicts before doing any kind of religious thing or doing any kind of devotional thing, that Jesus says if a man's making a sacrifice at the altar, he's to leave the altar and go make amends with his brother and sister before making it. Leave it there. I'm going to give you time to examine your hearts. To just consider what kinds of unforgiveness and bitterness and anger you might be holding towards someone else in this room. Commit to deal with it directly. Do things Jesus' way. And then together we will take the Lord's Supper. Elders will be in the back if you need anything. If you want to grab an elder to talk with you and this person, to pray with you, that's fine. You can do that. But before we take the Lord's Supper, let's just spend a few minutes in quiet reflection, evaluating our lives, seeking and confessing and restoring. Father God, I pray that this time will not be wasted. God, that it won't just be a sermon or something that people will listen to for 45 minutes, but that it'll be something that we live out. God, transform our lives, bring us repentance, break through stone, and then help us to have the joy we once had. We pray this in your son's name.